0: From
1: PRX. Today on Studio 360, two New York icons. First, West Side Story actually started something. West Side Story changed the rules about musicals having to be upbeat. It
2: gave permission for things like Cabaret and then things like Company and Follies, and then things like Fun Home and Dear Evan Hansen. How West Side Story was made
1: and why it keeps getting remade. Plus, one of Gary Winogrand's most famous photographs is also one of his most controversial.
3: It forces the viewer to confront their feelings about race, their feelings about what happens if a white woman and a black man get together.
1: The making of a photograph called Central Park Zoo and the man who helped define street photography. Those are ahead on Studio 360 right after this. 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is record. Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done.
0: Editing is all about timing.
4: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice,
0: right? Studio 360.
1: It's Kurt Anderson. Our new Studio 360 series New York icons is about works of art that were made in New York City but have shaped lives everywhere. And today, we're looking at two works not just made here in our home city, but where New York is also the backdrop. First, West Side Story. More than six decades after it first opened on Broadway, it is everywhere again. A new movie directed by Steven Spielberg from a screenplay by Tony Kushner just wrapped production in New York and there's a new Broadway revival directed by the Tony Award-winning director Ivo van Hove. Maybe you yourself were cast in a high school production of West Side Story or otherwise remember the story of rival gangs, the white ethnic jets, and the Puerto Rican sharks as some kind of quaint 50s nostalgia, like Greece. But the show actually was a real groundbreaker in musical theater. And the way it has been received over the years is complicated. Jennifer Vanasco brings us the story about how West Side Story was made and how it continues to delight and enrage audiences.
5: West Side Story was originally East Side Story, as in the Lower East Side, where a generation of immigrants had settled after arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe in the early 1900s. Many of those immigrants were Jewish, like the family of playwright Arthur Lawrence. He was born Arthur Levine. He changed his name, he said later, to get a job. That's a similar story to choreographer Jerome Robbins. He was born Jerome Rabinowitz on the Upper East Side. So in 1949, Robbins approached Lawrence and composer Leonard Bernstein with an idea. An updated version of Romeo and Juliet centered on dance. Lawrence died in 2011, but nine years earlier, he explained how this East Side story would imagine a conflict not between families, but between different immigrant groups.
6: And the girl, I think, was to be Catholic, and the boy was to be Jewish. It was to take place on the East Side during Easter, Passover.
5: But Lawrence and Bernstein thought, eh, it was too similar to a play that was a hit in the 1920s called... A.B.'s Irish Rose. Everybody knows I may be Irish Rose.
6: So nothing happened, and then some years later, Lenny and I were both in California.
5: This was in 1955. Lenny is Leonard Bernstein.
6: He was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel, very glamorous. Well, he was glamorous. So I went over to uh, have a swim there with him, and I remember we were sitting on the edge of the pool, dangling our feet in the water, and... There had been gang wars the night before in Los Angeles.
5: In the six years since Robbins had first approached them, urban life had changed. Gangs were in the news all over the country.
4: This is what a gang fight looks like. Different towns call them by different names. In New York, it's a rumble.
5: And Lawrence was looking for a story that meant something to urban theater audiences. Something contemporary, ripped from the headlines.
6: And we thought that was it. That was a great idea.
5: Bernstein wanted to set it in Los Angeles with a Chicano gang.
6: I said, we can do it in New York with Puerto Ricans.
5: It gives you an indication of their ego and ambition. That's historian Julia Folks. She's the author of "A Place for Us: West Side Story and New York."
0: They are relatively young still, right? They're not, you know, they're not newcomers anymore, but they're in their 40s, basically. so they're poised to take on even William Shakespeare at this point.
5: Lawrence and Bernstein brought a new lyricist on board—a young guy who'd never written for Broadway before, Stephen Sondheim. And Sondheim, as well as Lawrence, Robbins, Bernstein, they were all Jewish. Eventually, it was understood that they were all also gay, so they knew what it meant to be an outsider, to be discriminated against, to not be able to openly love the person they wanted to love, to have to fight
0: to be recognized as American. There is still this sort of sense of, like, who gets to be here? Who gets to claim their place? And I think the story resonates because of that. It's not just anywhere. It's in a densely populated city where people are coming from all different places, speaking different languages, claiming different heritages, and claiming different futures. And it's like, I, too, get to be here. All these
5: themes would be woven into West Side Story in place of Romeo, is Tony. This is from the 1961 film version.
6: Maria! Shh! Maria!
5: Quiet! He is Polish-American, a former gang member trying for a respectable life. Instead of Juliet, Maria, Maria. innocent, newly arrived from the island.
7: Mother and father will wake up.
5: Just for a minute. The two warring sides here are not Montagues and Capulets, but two gangs. The Italian, Polish, Irish, or just white ethnic Jets, And the Puerto Rican Sharks, the new Latino migrant. It's dangerous if Bernardo knew. We will let him know.
8: I'm not one of them, Maria.
5: But you are not one of us.
0: This new version remained true to Jerome Robbins' core concept. Romeo and Juliet, first notes included things like you could have the balcony scene on a fire escape. You could have some sort of mock wedding scene in a bridal shop. But something else had changed between 1949 and 1955.
9: Communism, in reality, is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life.
5: Lawrence had been suspected of being a communist. And Robbins had testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1953.
0: He admitted to being a Communist Party member for a few years. He named names, all of which were seen by many as a very violent act of betrayal, and that he endangered their lives and their jobs and their livelihood. Robbins hadn't called Lawrence a communist,
5: but Lawrence had testified too, and he hadn't named names. And
0: as a result, he was blacklisted in Hollywood. Folks thinks Robbins felt guilty. One of the things that he would never pushed against is when Lorenz put in the script a line about being a stool pigeon. Didn't nobody tell you there's a difference between being a stool pigeon and cooperating with the law? Robbins never commented about that line and didn't take it out. Or at least not out of the Broadway musical. It isn't in the movie. And I think that's because he knew that he had betrayed others, and he had betrayed himself on some level as well, perhaps.
5: So in the making of a musical about rivalry and tension... There was a bit of rivalry and tension among the collaborators. And yet, once rehearsal started, they were a team.
10: Now I don't know what happened at night, you know, over the drinks or during the day when there was a meeting, they could have knifed each other and wrapped their throats in something.
5: <laughs> Cheetah Rivera is now a Broadway legend. Rivera was just 21 and starting off as a dancer when a friend suggested she should audition for West Side Story.
10: So I went and I loved the Koyak. I loved everything about it. The music blew me away.
5: She was offered the role of Anita, the Puerto Rican girlfriend of the leader of the Sharks. Rivera herself is Puerto Rican. She was only one of two Latino people who were cast in speaking parts.
10: And I called mother in DC and I said, "Mama, they've just offered me
5: this show." I think it was $250 a week or something. She knew during rehearsals that West Side Story was something special. The power that
10: came from Leonard Bernstein when he conducted the sound of Stephen's hands on that piano. Jerry Robbins, the genius. An author, you know those Moments, you know, you hear, ba-da, ba I dare you hear that and your skin not go up.
5: <laughs> Rivera's character, Anita, is with the Sharks. One of the original Broadway Jets is Grover Dale.
6: When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day.
9: When it was announced that Robbins was thinking about casting unknowns. The buzz really went crazy, and those auditions were unbelievable.
5: In the early 1950s, Dale had moved from a steel town near Pittsburgh to the Upper West Side. Were you living in a Puerto Rican neighborhood?
9: Yes, I was. Amsterdam and Columbus from 79th up into the high 80s, that was gang territory. And it was turkey walking on the street. Oh, I kept my mouth shut. I minded my own business.
5: The city was a tough place to live, but it was better than where he came from.
9: I mean, I was used to being punished for dancing. You know, I was told on the street in McKeesport boys play football and chase girls, they don't dance. You know, maybe that's why. We're drawn to New York. Maybe why we pursue our art or whatever we dream of doing here. There is a
5: chance for it.
6: you are the top cat in town. You're the gold medal kid with the heavyweight crown.
5: Dale got his big chance when Robbins cast him as the jet called Snowboy. Right away, Robin said he wanted the Jets and Sharks to maintain their rivalry off stage because The thing that makes Maria and Tony's romance impossible is his hatred between the two gangs.
9: He said, look, there can be no socializing outside of rehearsals. This is where it all has to happen. We have to be faithful to it. No socializing.
5: Dale got it immediately.
9: And I remember arriving early backstage, and there by the stage door, I see a stack of cardboard. And I get this goofy idea.
5: So he goes upstairs to the dressing room with a box of crayons.
9: And I pick out the largest piece of cardboard I had, and I started drawing a big shark with, punctured with stab wounds and blood.
5: Other jets start arriving. He shows them his giant, bleeding cardboard shark. And at lunchtime, they have an idea.
9: We carried it up to the fly floor over the stage. And waited till everybody came back from lunch, including Robbins. The sharks are on the stage. And Jerry's looking around and he's saying, where are the jets?
5: Quietly, the jets pick up the bleeding shark and drop it from the rafters.
9: And it lands center stage right in front of his feet. And we scream, the sharks are dead meat. And... He roars. It's exactly the spirit of competition that he wanted to get going.
5: In those early rehearsals, Robbins was still working out the new steps. Dancers didn't usually act back then, but Robbins wanted something new, to create characters through movement, to have the dances convey a sense of menace. And he wanted all the major dramatic action, the fighting, the killing, to happen through dance. So
9: for three or four hours, he just worked trying to test our street credentials, okay? You know, how tough we could be, how we could snap our fingers.
5: And then, after weeks and weeks of work and an out-of-town tryout, it was opening night. September 26, 1957. The curtain comes down on the last scene.
9: There was absolute silence. Oh my God, I'm in a flop. And then suddenly, it erupted this standing ovation. We had no idea. And it was a
10: smash. Bam, smash hit. But we lost to music
5: band, the to Tony. Indiana Gary, Indiana my home sweet home. That's right. West Side Story did not win the Tony. That went to the Music Man.
2: Music Man looked and sounded much more like what a typical Broadway musical sounded like. You know, a lot of song and dance, a romance, a happy ending. West Side Story really challenged all of those norms.
5: Jack Vertel is a Broadway producer and the author of The Secret Life of the American Musical. He saw the original production when he was eight or nine years old, and he still remembers the scene where Maria and Tony's eyes meet at a dance. And they fall instantly in love.
2: The moment when those two see each other, Tony and Maria, is so poetically done and you know by looking at them as they enter from opposite sides of the stage and they look at each other and you think, oh, fate.
5: For the end of the first act, the Jets and Sharks rumble. As the curtain closes for intermission, both the head of the Jets and the head of the Sharks lie dead. On the stage.
2: And I remember being actually completely shocked and in tears at the intermission. I mean, I knew the story, I knew this was going to happen, but I was not prepared for the experience of having it happen in front of me, performed by live people in a dance sequence. It was really shocking. It may have been the first time I was ever really shocked at the theater and moved in that way.
5: And remember, it's based on Romeo and Juliet. The play doesn't end happily. The lovers don't get together. In fact, one of them dies. Neither gang is triumphant. All that's left is the consequences of violence. And at the end, Maria is on stage surrounded by both gangs, holding the gun that killed Tony.
10: I mean, that scene at the end, the sharks on one side and the jets on the other.
7: Stay back! How do you fire this gun? Chino?
10: And Maria's in the middle with Tony. I'm
7: pulling this little trigger. How many bullets are left, Gina?
10: She attacks them. Not for you. You did it. And you all of you. All of you. All of you! You all killed him. And my brother. And Riff.
6: Not with bullets and guns. With hate!
10: I'm in goose pimples.
6: Well, I can kill two. Because now I have hate! How many?
5: Can Vertel says, them? before West Side Story, serious tragic narratives were reserved for plays, and musicals were upbeat. But then this story used dance and music to make the tragedy visceral. And it challenged the very foundations of what a musical could be.
2: West Side Story pushed something forward that then became unstoppable. So that it led to, it gave permission for things like Cabaret and then things like Company and Follies. And then eventually things like Fun Home and Dear Evan Hansen.
1: We'll return to our New York icon story about West Side Story right after this.
0: Studio 360.
1: We're back with our New York Icons feature about West Side Story. Producer Jennifer Venasco picks up the story.
5: The musical closed and the cast went to perform it in London. But then it came back to Broadway in 1960 and was even more popular. And then...
9: Unlike other classics, West Side Story grows younger.
5: The film was released in October 1961. It became the second highest grossing film of the year and won 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It starred Natalie Wood.
6: I, Maria, take the Anton.
5: And Rita Moreno.
6: Sometimes I don't know which is thicker, your skull
5: or your accent. The opening was shot in San Juan Hill, a Puerto Rican and African-American neighborhood. The production was shooting at the same time the neighborhood was being torn down to make way for Lincoln Center and new luxury apartment buildings.
0: The filmmakers wanted to show the rubble to convey a sense of crumbling in the middle of rapid growth. The landscape of New York, both physically and demographically, are really being writ into the visual language of the film itself. The demographics of the city were changing drastically in the 1950s and 60s. You have white folks that are moving out to the suburbs, following some of the jobs that were migrating outside of metropolitan areas.
5: Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans were migrating to New York.
6: Your attention.
5: A half million migrated between 1950 and 1960.
6: Continental Airlines announces the arrival of flight 848, tourist flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico.
0: There was increased use of airplanes, and so people were traveling instead of by boat in a much longer sort of voyage. They could go back and forth to the island of Puerto Rico much more easily and faster. Some people sort of described, actually, the flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico, as a kind of bus in some ways, um, just basically a bus with wings. Movie
5: audiences in New York and elsewhere thought that West Side Story was giving them insight into the lives of the new arrivals. It's their entry point in engaging with that Puerto Rican experience. My name is Frances Negro Montaner. I am a professor at Columbia University. She says the film portrays Puerto Ricans as violent and also colorful. They're great dancers. The women are spitfires or virgins. It uses brownface to make the actors darker than they would naturally be. Also, like the play, the film has lyrics like this, sung by Anita.
7: Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean.
5: (laughs) Which is not how Puerto Ricans typically see their homeland. In fact, an actual Puerto Rican song of the time, captured by WNYC host Tony Schwartz and translated by someone listening to it, criticizes the mainland.
9: Since I came here,
5: the cold weather is trying to kill me. This is not my country. I am very disgusted. Shireen Marisol Maragi is the host of NPR's Code Switch podcast. Her mother is Puerto Rican and would sing songs from West Side Story to her and her brother at bedtime and on long car trips. Can we
7: go back to America? Maragi spoke on a panel at the Kennedy Center. My favorite song to love and hate in West Side Story. Uh, my favorite song to love because I, you know, da, 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 You know, I love the, the rhythm, the, how it propels you forward. I want to get up. I want to dance. And I think the lyrics are the part of that song that are really powerful. Like, life can be bright in America if you can fight in America. Life is all right in America if you're all white in America. I'm like, wow, this is 1957. That is some radical stuff to be saying. But I'm thinking about people who don't know anything about Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans and listening to Island of Tropical Diseases where the hurricanes are blowing and the population's growing and the natives are steaming. I mean, there's just so many things where you're like, ugh, the stereotypes. So that song, I love it. And I cringe sometimes when I'm singing it to myself.
8: America, la, 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 America. America.
5: All of this may not have mattered if there were dozens of films mining the Puerto Rican experience, but there weren't then and there aren't now. Which is why Professor Negro Montaner says so many people of Puerto Rican heritage are angry when West Side Story is remade or remounted because it has nothing to do with the actual Puerto Rican experience but it's still the lens through which many white mainland Americans see Puerto Ricans. Despite the fact that there are major Puerto Rican movie stars, there are major Puerto Rican stars in music and other areas of cultural production in the United States, the main
0: and still major reference point culturally that's appreciated, that's considered a valuable part of American culture itself, is West Side Story.
11: My mom is a, is a fan uh, so I think she thinks it's so, uh, the songs are so clever and it's so glamorous.
5: Urayo Noel is a poet, writer, and professor at New York University. He says for many older Puerto Ricans, like his mother, West Side Story was their first chance to see themselves up on a big screen as three-dimensional characters. Lin-Manuel Miranda, creator of Hamilton and a Puerto Rican himself, has said he couldn't believe it when he realized the sharks were Puerto Rican. And after Hurricane Maria devastated the island, he raised money for relief efforts by releasing a song that pulled its chorus directly from the song Maria.
0: like like
5: Like Miranda, many Latino artists have remixed West Side Story over the decades, allowing them to make the musical their own, so it reflects how they see their own culture instead of how white people see it. Noel points to Adal's short film, West Side Story Redux, which blends Puerto Rican singing plus sounds of emergency radios and images of police brutality. There's iconic Cuban singer La Lupe, who sang America in Spanish in the 1960s. There's comedian Suni Reyes' parody video.
7: Always colonizer's coming immigration growing
0: and the Jones Act stealing and the Congress lying.
5: And there's Bobby Sanabria's West Side Story Reimagined, which takes Bernstein's music and sets it to a Latin beat.
11: There certainly are artists and writers who've been really bold in saying I'm not giving up on the style, right? On the fabulosity.
5: But Noel says For millennials, the world is just different.
11: I think for a lot of younger folks who maybe didn't grow up, right, with the aura of West Side Story, it feels like, what's the point, right? We have all these, we have Sonia Sotomayor, right? We have all all these other figures, right? And so why are we still uh, harking back, right, uh, to all this stuff from the 60s?
5: Why are we still talking about West Side Story? It's just so good. The music, the dancing. If it wasn't so technically good as a work of art, it would have been forgotten a long time ago. But we also keep coming back to it because, well, it's about a clash of cultures and about people's efforts to bridge them and to find a place where everyone can fit. New York has long been celebrated as a city where anyone has the opportunity to make their dreams come true. Historian Julia Folks. That is not this story. It's not that story because Bernstein, Lawrence, Sondheim, and Robbins knew that a happy, shiny, easy city of dreams wasn't their own New York. Their New York was one of outsiders, of competition, of different ideas smashing against each other. And that's why this tale about a few blocks in one neighborhood on the west side of Manhattan has resonated around the world. Because other outsiders from other places who are familiar with the kind of discord that comes with dense cities with diverse populations, people who just want a place to call their own, they say
0: this is our story too this is us in South Africa. This is us on the West Bank. You know, these places of such conflict are actually some of the places where it has played the most. You know, all of that, trying to just find your place, asking, needing, yearning to belong in your own ways, defined in your own terms, I think is something that really does resonate with a lot of people.
1: That piece was produced by Jennifer Venasco of WNYC, where she is the theater critic. It was mixed by Wayne Schulmeister. Our next New York icon takes us not far from the Jets and Sharks' disputed territory on the west side into Central Park, specifically to the Central Park Zoo. That is the setting for one of the most controversial photographs taken by Gary Winogrand, who was this prolific American street photographer of the 50s and 60s into the 80s. Along with zoo animals, other subjects he photographed, kind of obsessively, were beautiful women and crowds of people in public spaces. And, unconventional when he was first working, he tilted the horizons in his shots and used wide-angle lenses. He got really celebrated in the 1960s and 70s for his unique vision and style, but he also got plenty of criticism among feminists for pictures that, to them, seemed to objectify women. Now, more than 30 years after his death at just 56 in 1984, Winogrand continues to make waves in the world of fine art photography. Producer Richard Ye looks at Winogrand's photography by going inside one of his most controversial pictures. It's a
4: photograph made in the Central Park Zoo.
12: That's photographer
1: Todd Papageorge.
12: He's talking about a picture taken by Gary Winogrand.
4: What we see in the, filling the frame pretty much are a couple, an attractive blonde woman and uh, an equally attractive black man. And they're very well-dressed. Each one is holding in her or his arms uh, a chimpanzee, dressed to the nines, with little shoes on and so forth.
3: The notion of a child is that idea that the chimpanzees are their children is provoked.
12: And that's Susan Kiesmerich. She was a longtime photo curator at the Museum of Modern Art.
3: There is a little boy... In a 60s sort of proper Sunday, you know, he's got a little cap on and a little nice formal coat, and he's in profile, so he's very clearly seen in the picture once you get over the craziness of the chimpanzees. It forces the viewer to confront their feelings about race, their feelings about what happens if a white woman and a black man get together.
12: The picture was taken in 1967, the year the Supreme Court made its landmark ruling on interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia.
6: The Lovings were married in 1958 outside of Virginia, here in the District of Columbia. But they were convicted under Virginia law, which forbids any white person and color... Richard
12: Loving, a white man, and his wife Mildred, a black woman, were sentenced to a year in prison for getting married.
6: The legal term is miscegenation. And those who support such laws claim they are necessary in order to preserve the purity of the races.
12: With its ruling, the Supreme Court struck down all remaining anti-miscegenation laws in the United States. Right away, the number of interracial marriages around the country began to rise.
4: You look at the picture, and anyone with any ability to create narratives is going to say, my God, is this what happens when the races mix? Is this what they produce, chimpanzees?
12: Papa George was actually with Winogrand at Central Park Zoo that day. The two had become friends the year before and would sometimes walk around the city together shooting pictures on the streets.
4: I was walking ahead of him and made a vertical picture of the four when the two chimpanzees were walking on the ground between them through the zoo. And then... I felt myself being shoved out of the way by somebody, which turned out to be Gary, who, in his own kind of way, was uniquely eager to make that
12: picture. He says Winogrand was chasing a sort of artistic hunch.
4: All I saw was a kind of strange, bizarre New York event. But he saw something. He saw the projected picture.
12: And when it comes to photography... Papa George believes Winogrand was generally less concerned with the ultimate success of a picture than what Winogrand called the problem of making it.
8: How do you make a photograph that's more interesting than, than, the, than what happened? That's really the problem.
12: That's Gary Winogrand talking to photography students at Rice University in 1977.
8: You know, when you photograph something beautiful, what, how do you make a photograph that's more beautiful than what, than what was photographed? That's really our problem. In the end.
12: He seemed to be saying that the distance between how a photograph looks and the actual things that the photograph describes is the space for the artist's intentions.
8: In the end, the, the, the word dramatic has to apply. It always, it's always about that. How, how, is the photograph more dramatic than what was photographed? It has to be.
12: Many of Winogrand's most memorable photos contain some dramatic juxtapositions in mundane situations like the image of two girls and presumably their moms on a New York sidewalk. Everyone's arms are in the air, except the moms are looking down the street trying to fly down a taxi, and the girls are looking at each other playing a clapping game.
13: It's very hard to sort of say this is a singular Gary Winogrand photo.
12: That's Jeffrey Henson-Scales, a photo editor at the New York Times. He met Winogrand in the early 1980s when they both lived and worked in Los Angeles.
13: He used the wide-angle lens for a vision that was uniquely his at the time. One of the things that you often see is, you know, groups of people in these sort of seemingly choreographed situations where their gesture, their body language, their faces, their expressions are all different, but they add up to a complex whole kind of dance.
12: Sometimes his subjects can look like they're dancing even when they're sitting down like his photo from the 1964 World's Fair of six young women in summer dresses sitting on a park bench with their legs crossed. The three in the middle seem to be sharing gossip. The two on the right are staring at something mysterious outside the edge of the photo. The one on the left is gaping at a man next to her. There's so much going on here, and as you keep looking around, you begin to see that the horizon is tilted, which adds even more dynamics to the image.
13: His use of tilted horizon as a compositional element. He was one of the pioneers of using that sort of visual device effectively. They're just great pictures. So many great pictures. So many pictures, not all great. You know, he liked to photograph women. He's very interested in women. And, you know, that was cause of some controversy. Through the 60s and the early
12: 70s, as the feminist movement saw gains in areas like workplace protections and reproductive rights, Winogrand took a lot of photos of attractive, curvaceous women in public places, just going about their lives.
3: They're often attractive. You can often see their breasts easily defined in the pictures.
12: Again, MoMA curator Susan Kissmerick.
3: The pictures were interpreted as being part of the male gaze. The work was terribly criticized. It was absolutely ill-timing, thoughtless.
12: Winogrand didn't do himself any favors when he collected these pictures in the book, unapologetically titled, Women Are Beautiful. Still, Kismaric has a much more forgiving take on his women photos than most critics at the time.
3: See, I saw the pictures as more complicated, perhaps, than looking at breasts or looking at beautiful women. Women weren't wearing bras then in the 70s. They burned bras, if you remember. It really is about a kind of physical energy. I think he saw them as great, powerful, equal, if not better. I think he absolutely admired women. He was an absolutely devoted family man. He was absolutely devoted to all three of his wives.
12: She says that's why Winogrand started his career shooting commercial assignments for
3: magazines. And he had to make a living. He got married when he was quite young to Adrian Lubo And I mean, I think she was all of 17 years old. So he did commercial assignments, and the assignments were always the best when he was sort of given freedom.
12: But commercial work didn't satisfy Winogrand. And soon, in his early 20s, he began shooting personal work on the street.
3: I think he had specific ideas. The work on the street begins in the 50s. And Manhattan at the time, I mean, after the war, it was America's this sort of epitome of post-war prosperity. And Gary was well aware of that, especially being, as John Tchaikovsky described him, a hick from the Bronx. John
12: Tchaikovsky was the legendary director of photography at MoMA who was perhaps the biggest booster of Winogrand's career.
3: So Gary comes down from the Bronx, goes to Midtown Manhattan, where all of this is happening. By the time, I think around 1961 or 62, rolled around, he's trying to figure out how to make a living once he gives up the magazines, and he starts running workshops for photographers.
12: Todd George was in those early workshops in Winogrand's Upper West Side apartment. He says the classes felt more like coffee clutches.
4: In a way, it was puzzling, because Gary would just ask question after question after question, and I was not so well acquainted with Greek philosophy at the time that I didn't recognize this as the Socratic method.
12: Papa George, who later headed the graduate photo department at the Yale School of Art, says Winogrand's philosophical takes on the medium influenced him deeply.
4: The whole purpose of it, from his point of view, Was to clarify and begin to articulate his ideas about photography. That was the tremendous lesson that I learned from Gary. And then this whole working theory of photography that he was structuring, creating through these little aphorisms, he would say, What photograph isn't a still life?
3: There are all these aphorisms from Gary which can be maddening, like I photograph to see what something will look like photographed.
4: When he says famously, I photograph to find out what something will look like photographed, it's not something casual. That took a lot of very, very hard thinking on his part to put together.
1: We'll be back with the rest of our New York Icon story about Gary Winogrand's photographed Central Park Zoo right after this.
0: Studio 360.
1: We're back now with our New York Icons feature about Gary Winogrand and his famous photograph Central Park Zoo. Producer Richard Yeh picks up the story.
12: Before he met Winogrand, Papa George was taking photographs across Europe and imitating the style of Henri Cartier-Bresson. That, of course, is the French master who coined the term decisive moment. The idea that the artistry of photography was to know exactly when to click the camera to achieve the ideal composition of life and other forms that would not exist a moment later or sooner.
4: I had this illusion that it was somehow related to the famous phrase, decisive moment, that you went out and you, you tread the streets and waited and waited for things to sort of fall together in that miraculous moment.
12: Beginning in the 1930s, Cartier-Bresson pioneered the genre that became known as street photography in which the subjects typically don't pose for the camera and are not aware that they are being photographed. The result is a sort of candid realism that can be summed up by the word verite, the French word for truth.
13: When you're photographing on the street, it's a very physical activity. You have to move through the crowd. You have to sort of be in a dance to try to remain anonymous. You don't want people to alter what they're doing because of your presence, that's the challenge.
12: And Cartier-Bresson was able to remain a fly on the wall wherever he photographed, in part because the cameras got a lot smaller, especially the Leica rangefinder. It's so compact in size, the shutter and film winder were so quiet, it was often the only type of still cameras allowed on the movie set. And the Leica was so easy to shoot with, street photographers would use it like it's an extension of their arm.
3: Gary would do this thing where he'd take a picture, and then he would look at the camera as though something was wrong with it. And it was this very clever gesture to help the people who he may have photographed who were thinking, wait wait a second, what's going on here? Why is it, oh, well, it didn't work anyway, so I'm going to keep walking. It's okay if he photographed me.
4: Imagine you're going to scratch your nose. (laughs) Only in the hand that's doing the scratching, you have a Leica. And that's all they saw was somebody lift this thing up, look as if he was just touching his nose, and the camera was down again, and it was totally unclear whether, whether he had in fact made a picture. And in most cases, he had.
12: Underneath that disguise as a clumsy camera guy, Winogrand was able to move among his subjects on the street and remain relatively inconspicuous. And while Cartier-Bresson preferred the 50-millimeter lens, which had a similar perspective to the human eye, Winogrand always shot with a wide-angle lens, which gave his images a more expansive and dynamic look. With Gary,
4: I saw the possibilities for pictures were much, much more present and shifting and overwhelming than I had ever thought.
12: Winogrand made more than a million pictures in his life. He's been called the first digital photographer because he was so prolific. And that's what Jeffrey henson Scales remembers about meeting Winogrand in the early 80s.
13: I met him at the farmer's market in Los Angeles, and I had been working as a freelance photographer. We talked for a long time, and, you know, one of the things he told me is that the trouble with photographers he felt in L.A. is many of them were waiting for someone to give them an assignment, and they never really would realize their own potential because they were always waiting for an assignment, which for me was pretty life-altering because then I started shooting every day.
8: I really don't think you, le- anybody, you really learn from teachers. You learn from work. You have to be your own toughest critic. And you only learn that from work, from seeing work.
12: Again, Gary Winogrand at Rice University.
8: In terms of my experience, Evans's work was radically different. You know, for my money, he's probably the most transparent.
12: He's talking about Walter Evans, who documented the plight of poor farmers in the Dust Bowl and the effects of the Great Depression for the Farm Security Administration.
8: Evans, more than anybody else, gets out of the way. He's as close to being transparent, to, being, to not existing. But from what I said, that's the way I have to express it. I would like not to exist.
12: I would like not to exist. That's another one of Winogrand's famous aphorisms. The desire to be totally inconspicuous its the essence of his street photography. And what better place to disappear than New York
11: City? New York is really great.
12: That's David D. Delgado, a photojournalist from the Bronx.
11: We all have different quirks. It may be the way you walk. It may be the way you look at things. It may be what you're wearing. It may be just the way the light is hitting you at the moment.
12: And he's always shooting. For work assignments, he uses modern digital cameras with big zoom lenses. But in his free time, he likes to walk around with his little Leica rangefinder.
11: You go with a prime, which is, you know, a fixed focal lens, and yeah, you zoom with your feet. Sometimes I'll see an image half a block away and I'm running through foot traffic because I see the the movement is fleeting and I need to grab that image.
12: He's talking about the so-called zone-focusing method, which Winogrand was known for. With a prime lens, meaning not a zoom lens, but one with a fixed focal length, street photographers can preset their lens to focus on a desired range, say 6 to 12 feet. And as long as they stay within that zone with their subjects, they can take photos quickly without the need to refocus every time.
11: You move around, this is a ballet of sorts where you're you know, moving around people to get a photo, you're dodging and you're moving. Yeah, I could probably grab it with a zoom lens, but a zoom lens is kind of cheating. You know, um, you, as a street photographer, you need to get in there. You need to get dirty and put in the work.
12: That idea that street photographers need to get up close and personal with your subjects may be the enduring legacy of Winogrand. Curator Susan Kismerich.
3: The pictures have so much information— So much detail, so much energy, there's so much action, there's so many things to think about in each photograph. And I think Gary, perhaps more than anyone, pushed that. I mean, he changes from a 35 to a 28-millimeter lens, and he did it specifically for that reason to see how far it could be pushed.
12: But to Winogran, more information doesn't mean more answers.
8: Let's face it, I mean, what do you know from a photograph? They don't have narrative ability. They're talking about a cow jumping, but you don't know if it's going up or down even from the picture. So why should you know where the hell it was
12: taken? And that's the trouble with the chimpanzee photo from the zoo and why it's become such a controversial image in Winogrand's body of work. We don't really know anything about the couple. Papa George says they look like models for a fashion shoot, but doesn't remember anything else about the event.
8: The interesting thing is, I mean, there's a seeming paradox functioning. They're not ambiguous. There's nothing ambiguous about any of these photographs, yet you don't know what's happening.
12: In the picture, the woman's blonde hair is neatly tied up in a kerchief. The chimpanzees' arms cling onto their human guardians. The sunlight perfectly illuminates the group, and everyone looks very serious, like they care about one another. The picture is full of details, but it doesn't have much action or context.
3: He refuses to back away from the actuality of things and the actuality the liminal moments, the moments between the raising of the flag at Imojima. As wonderful and symbolic as that picture is, the liminal moments is how we spend 99% of our lives. There's not a lot of high drama. So if you're interested in life... You can make pictures that are highly symbolic and fairly obvious and easily accessible, or you can try to describe something that is complicated, intricate. And I think Gary was successful in doing that by being alert to all of, all of it out there.
12: Winogrand left New York in 1971, first moving to Chicago, then to Austin, and finally to L.A. He continued to photograph until his death in 1984, shortly after being diagnosed with cancer. To many of his friends and critics, his work was not the same after he left New York.
4: Like the Greek myth, Antaeus, who lost his strength when he was lifted up from the earth, his strength came from the earth. I think Gary's total brilliance as an artist came from the the bedrock of this island that we're on, Manhattan. You know, New
8: York City is urban. Chicago can be urban. Los Angeles doesn't happen that way talk about not existing you know, like when I'm in New York, I'm anonymous. I could be, I could go to that goddamn street, the same street corner every day for 10 years, and I'd never see this. I wouldn't see the same people twice most of the time, you know, really.
1: WNYC's Richard Ye produced our story, and it was mixed by Wayne Schulmeister. Our New York Icons series is supported by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. To hear more of the New York Icons, head over to Studio360.org. And that's it for this week's program. Studio360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team consists of
0: Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez-Monsalve,
1: Evan Chung,
0: Zoe Saunders,
13: Sam Kim,
0: Morgan Flannery,
13: Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He was staying
6: at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Very glamorous. Well, he was glamorous.
1: Thanks for listening.
4: PRI Public Radio International.
1: Next time on Studio 360, a jazz superstar's journey into the classical music universe. I'm trying to figure out what things do we have in common, what vocabulary can I use. Wynton Marsalis on his third symphony, the Swing Symphony. But I'm a jazz musician, so at the end of the day, I'm going to swing. Why? That's what I like to do. That's next time on Studio 360.